Hi, welcome to Magdalen Road Church. We're glad that you're here and you've found uh, the sermon from Sunday, the thirteenth of October. This is just a short note at the beginning of this sermon in particular to let you know that the recording cut out about two thirds of the way and then started back up again, and it created a couple of glitchy patches about two thirds of the way in. And so I am in my study at the moment. Uh, just re-recording a couple of those bits, and we've done our best to stitch it back together as naturally as possible. Uh, we pray that this blesses you. Psalm twenty-seven, verse four, says, "One thing I ask from the Lord: this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze." On the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. One thing: to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. Those of us who have children or grandchildren、uh, might be familiar with reading your child a story, and as soon as it's finished. They say, "Again." And as soon as it's finished, they say, "Again." <laughs> Same book. It's not about new information. It's about enjoying the book again. And there's something similar about knowing the Lord. As Christians, it is our joy to see our Lord. To see His power and His ways, and to enjoy Him. But it's not just enjoyment, as though it were trivial entertainment. Seeing our Lord Jesus and knowing Him more deeply strengthens our faith and our trust in Him. He is completely sufficient for us in every way, and seeing His sufficiency is our joy. And our good. And Mark is doing something of this in our text today. We already know that Jesus is a miracle worker and that he can cast out demons and heal the sick. So it's not new information. But at this point in the book, Mark slows right down and takes us up close to a twenty-four hour taste of life with Jesus. And we can see that this is what Mark is doing by just a quick comparison with how many verses he uses for these events in contrast to Matthew and Luke. So, very quickly, for example,、uh, with respect to the、um, story about the demon-possessed man among the tombs, Matthew takes six verses to narrate this event, whereas Mark uses twenty-one. <coughs> Or、uh, with the ruler of the synagogue with his sick daughter, Luke, who generally likes to cover things quite well,、uh, uses sixteen verses, and Mark uses twenty-two verses. And this is more so the case given Mark's pattern so far, which, as we noted last week, is quite quick. He moves from scene to scene to scene to scene to scene to scene, but now he slows right down. And in these four little episodes, 
before he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, Mark goes into detail and gives us an extended account of some of the miracles of Jesus. The point is, he's bringing us right up close to Jesus. We're kind of getting in the boat with them, as it were, to see Jesus in action. And the point is that we would feel what it's like to be around Jesus and experience his work. And that's what we're going to try to do together with the rest of our time. We're going to move around a little bit. So you will have noticed the reading's quite long. There's four events. Uh, and so in order to cover it, I'm just, you're going to have to trust me uh, and go to your home group and look at it in more detail there. Uh, so do follow along if you, if you like and if you can. But I'm going to be moving through each of the stories a few times to pick up some themes. This is 24 hours with Jesus. So we'll get, that's uh, what we're going to do. We're going to do that first, and then we'll take a little bit of time to think about how to respond to this. How does Mark want us to respond to this encounter with Jesus? So, 24 hours with Jesus. First thing to note is the theme that runs through these events one theme at least, is impossibility. Impossibility. Or inability. It's present in each event, uh, but we see Mark pressing the point in two narratives in particular. Uh, the first is with the, um, with the scenario with the, de with the demoniac, the man who comes out of the tombs. We've already noted that Mark uh, has an extended description at these points, but let's just walk through that together and see what Mark's doing. So the man comes out of the tomb. We're in chapter 5, and we're in verse 2 there. The man comes out of the tomb to meet Jesus. And then look how Mark describes this man in verse 3. No one could bind him anymore. He keeps going. Not even with a chain. Verse 4. Just in case you're wondering, he had often been chained. Both hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons off his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. That's a long description so far. He's going on in detail. But it gets worse. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Not only that, but he doesn't just have one demon. He has what can be called a legion of demons. So a legion of soldiers in the Roman army is somewhere around about 5,000 soldiers, give or take. And the name is illustrative. The power inside of him, this power of this legion of, angel, of demons, is able to drive a herd of 2,000 pigs into the sea. That's a lot of power inside this guy. And what we're left with after our encounter with this demoniac 
is a seriously bleak picture. We're meant to feel uneasy about the situation. This guy is unbindable. You don't want to be around him. He's living in the tombs. He's crying out on the mountains and cutting himself. And nobody can restrain him. This is an erratic, violent, scary, uncontrollable scene. It's absolutely chaotic and unsettling. That's what it's like to encounter this guy. And you've come out of the boat, you're with Jesus, and this is who you've met. This is a scene that feels absolutely impossible, and we're meant to feel that. The same sense of impossibility is present with the woman who has had the constant bleeding. Look, Mark does a similar thing with his extended description of her situation. In verse 25, a woman was there. So we move down now in chapter 5. In verse 25, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. It's long. It's ongoing. And she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Not just one or two doctors have given it a shot. This is many doctors who can't fix her problem. Not only that, but she had spent all she had. She's thrown everything at it and she's got no more resources left. She's tried her best. And not only that, far from getting better, she's actually getting worse. This is a long, difficult, unmanageable condition that she's in. She is unable to do anything about it and no one else is able to do anything about it either. And now she's broke because she's spent all she has and she is dead set at the end of the road. And that's the point. Impossibility. The same thing is seen uh, with the disciples in the boat. Perhaps slightly easier to see. They're in a small boat in a big sea and they're at the mercy of the ocean. The thing about being in the ocean is there's no anchor point. If you don't have an anchor in, you don't have something to grab onto, you don't have a fixed point to grab. You're floating around and the thing that you want to grab on is, onto is the very thing that's causing you trouble. It's the ocean. There's no, you, you, can't, you can't fix and stable yourself. You're completely at the mercy of the ocean. <clears throat> I remember once getting myself uh, out into the sea. I'm Australian. And when I was a bit younger, I was swimming. Uh, foolishly got myself too far out the back and the waves were too big. And I was scared to come in because the only way to come in was to catch a wave because the waves were... I couldn't, I couldn't beat the, the waves in. I was either going to land, they were going to land on me or I was going to have to ride one in. And I was scared. And it, I was near rocks. There was a rock wall that came out. And I 
I, I either had to go out to sea and go around this, an opening, or, or I didn't really know what to do. And I panicked. I was kind of all right for a while, then I had a moment of panic, and I felt myself, I'm really not in control here. I'm really not in control. I'm out in the ocean, and I'm at the mercy of the ocean right now. Long story short, I ended up going to tr uh, for, the, for the approach of trying to let one of these smaller waves wash me up onto the rocks. I survived. <laughs> and it is I was embarrassed to tell Joanna that it, that it happened. I was probably 16 or 17. But I screamed like a girl. <laughs> I did, because I panicked at that moment. There was like a moment of panic and a shrill came out of my mouth. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever shrilled like that before again. But the point was, I was terrified because I was at the mercy of the ocean and I realised I can't do anything about this. I'm stuck and I need help. Jairus' daughter needs no explanation. She's dying and Jairus is aware of that. And so he's come to Jesus. Each of these stories is meant to get impossibility in our face and human inability to fix the problem. Now, before we look at how Jesus uh, responds to these situations, we have to remember something which is too easy to forget if you've been a Christian for a while. And that is this. Jesus is a man, right? He's a man. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes with me for a minute and think about Jesus the man. Here you are, you're a disciple and you've been living with this guy and he talks like a man, just like all the other men. He doesn't have a halo kind of voice that easily distinguishes him as a kind of godlike man. He sounds like every other Jew. He eats food. You invite him to your house and he'll take a seat. He'll pour a cup of water. He'll wait for the meal. He'll pick up his spoon, I presume, and eat the meal. And he might even ask for seconds because he's still hungry. Uh, my guess is that he'll laugh as well. You'll invite him to a party, he'll come along with his friends, they'll chat and laugh together, they'll have a drink, they'll banter, grab some crisps. And before his ministry started, he would have spent hours at his carpentry, at his trade. There he was, he'd be in the workshop and he'd be concentrating when he measured twice and cut once. He would have sweat as he laboured away, making the same piece of furniture multiple times. And then when his body got tired and weary at the end of the day, he would have gone home, climbed into bed, put his head on the pillow and gone for a well-deserved rest. That's Jesus. That's what he would have done. He's a man. He's earthy. You'd hear his breathing. And the disciples are walking around with this guy, right? Jesus is with us, and Jesus is a man. <clears throat> now, if we miss 
the reason I do that is because if we miss Jesus' humanity, I think we miss the impact and the jolt of the events. Because when you see that Jesus is this man next to you, and then when you see this impossibility and how each situation is resolved, then the sense of wonder gets ramped right up. What on earth is going on with this guy? So we've got those two pieces in place. Now let's think about the ease with which Jesus deals with each of these situations. When it comes to the boat, Jesus is woken up and without any hocus-pocus, he tells the storm to be quiet and calm down and bang. Just like that, the ocean and the weather obey him. Now, that sort of stuff just doesn't happen, right? (laughs) Remember that. That sort of stuff doesn't just happen, okay? Now, that story about Jesus being in the boat, it sounds like the story of Jonah, okay? Jonah's asleep in the boat. The sailors are terrified because there's a big storm. They wake up Jonah. Jonah comes out, and then Jonah says, here's what Jonah says, because they're finding out which God has got us into this mess. And Jonah says, I worship the God of heaven and earth. He made everything, and I'm running away from him, so you need to throw me into the sea because I'm the, core, I'm the problem here and this storm is a storm that God has sent, right? So they throw Jonah into the sea and the storm calms down straight away, just like that. Sound familiar? Now, in the Jonah story, who calmed the storm? I worship the Lord, the God who made the heavens and the earth. And the sailors get it and they worship the Lord. In fact, in Jonah, everything is obedient to God except Jonah. And that, with a word, is how Jesus calms the storm. And for those with ears to hear, they can hear. There's something about Jesus. What about the demoniac? So in chapter 5, what kind of ease do we see with Jesus there? Well, I think you can see it in a strong contrast that Mark intends for us to see between the man who in verse 4 on the one hand, no one was strong enough to subdue him, and then straight away, it's this juxtaposition set side by side, you have the man's posture towards Jesus is he's on his knees begging Jesus to uh, have mercy on him. Don't torture me. Even the demons are begging Jesus. You've got a picture of there you are with Jesus. Here's this uncontrollable man and when he encounters Jesus, He's blubbering at his feet like a baby. To the degree to which the disciples are at the mercy of the ocean and more, the man and his legion of demons is at the mercy of Jesus. And so again, 
with one word, Jesus calms the storm inside this man. And finally, we do see ease also present uh, with the woman and with Jairus' daughter. In the case of the woman, it is simply the hem of Jesus' garment that she touches. Right? Jesus is not even... Jesus is not whipping any, up any kind of effort there. He's just walking through the crowd. She reaches out and power, as it were, is oozing out of Jesus. To, to solve this problem that many doctors and all her money couldn't resolve and Jesus is just dripping enough power to solve that problem. That's how we're meant to feel it. Jesus solves that with ease. With the case of Jairus's daughter, he simply takes her hand and says, daughter, up you get. And just as easy as waking a person from their sleep and probably easier, Jesus raises this young girl from the dead. As James Edwards said, for Jesus, word is deed. The impossible is possible with Jesus. And what's the point of all this? Why do we need to see these three things? It's to highlight Jesus's unbelievable power. Can you imagine what it would be like as a disciple in these four events, right? This is your 24 hours with Jesus. You're like, man, hanging out with you is mad. And then comes a good question. How should we respond? How do we respond to this? And how will we respond to this? One response is fear. And I think in some sense, it seems fitting. Did you notice with the disciples in the boat, they were in the storm and the storm was terrifying. They wake up, don't you care? Right, they're panicking. Jesus calms the storm And then how does Mark describe the disciples after that? They were terrified. (laughs) The way that it's worded is, uh, you know, if you were to, to translate it in a roundabout way, is they feared a great fear. That's what they were doing. They were fearing a great fear. It was like, whoa. And yeah, that seems like a fitting response. Right? Who on earth is in our boat? Like, that's what they say. Who then is this? Who is in our boat? We were really afraid of the storm. But hold on just a second. You just told us you're you're in our boat and you're powerful enough to do that? So we see that the disciples... The villagers and the woman suffering from constant bleeding all respond in fear when they encountered Jesus' power. But I think that the surprise is not fear, but the invitation to faith. Jesus asks the disciples while they're in the boat, Do you still have no faith? Jesus teaches the woman with the constant bleeding, Your faith. Has healed you. 
And Jesus encourages Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. These stories are here as an invitation to faith. And it is faith in Jesus, to be sure, but I think we can be more specific than this. There's a reason why each of these stories deals with impossible situations, because there is something else that unites them. There's another thread running through these four events. And it's something every one of us in this room will have to face at some point in our lives. And that's death. And Jesus takes us on a journey here with him today, so we can see his power as the giver of life in the face of death. Let me show you very briefly how each of these stories is a story about life and death. Starting with the boat. First thing we need to remember is that the sea in scripture is not always just water. At the beginning of creation, for example, darkness is over the deep and the spirit is hovering over the waters. And then when God uh, floods the land in the days of Noah, he floods it with water. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of chaos. It's a picture of decreation. The world has gone back to being formless and void and it is covered in water. It's a picture of death. Or, for example, when the, as we trace this theme through scripture, we see that the psalmist will cry out and he'll say things like this. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. Or, in another psalm, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. These pictures, being saved from the waters, are pictures of being saved from death. The waters have come right up to his neck. Death is right at his door. And this is what we have with the situation with the disciples in the boat. The disciples have literally been saved from death. That's what Jesus just did. When it comes to the demoniac, we see that this demoniac lives among the tombs. This man is like the living dead. The disciples had the storm around them, he has the storm within. And we need to remember that life in the Bible is not simply about existence. Life in the Bible is not just about being, It's also about existence ordered rightly around and with God. Come with me. Death is expressed in different ways, and some of them are exile. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. The Israelites are removed from the land in exile. In exile, in destruction and disorder. Nebuchadnezzar being an example. And that's what we see here with this man. He's a man who couldn't be more disordered. He couldn't be more away from life. 
cutting himself on the mountains. The man has an army inside of him and is at war with himself. It's a picture of self-destruction. And we see that shift away from destruction to war and disorder in the repair that Jesus makes in the man's life. Jesus gives the man life. Because after the encounter with Jesus, he's a picture of sobriety and civility. He's sitting with Jesus, he's dressed, he's in his right mind, he's sitting down, it's a picture of peace. He has been restored to life. It's a different picture, but it's still a picture of the realm of death and Jesus' power over it. For Jairus and his daughter, it's clear. Here's a man whose daughter actually dies and Jesus gives her life. And sandwiched in between that story of Jairus, so the structure is a little bit all over the place, but in the middle of that story of Jairus, you know, it starts out, Jesus meets Jairus, and then you kind of have this little piece where along comes the woman who's had the constant bleeding and then it goes back to the story of Jairus. And what Mark likes to do is he likes to stick a story in the middle of another story because both of the stories are related. Now I just want to show you how the story of the woman is linked to the story of Jairus and how they both are about life and death. One of the ways is simply because of this structure. Another way is because the girl, how old is she? She's 12 years old. How long has the woman had the bleeding problem? For 12 years. Not only so, but Jesus, what does he call the woman when he heals her? Daughter. He calls her daughter. And I think it's the only place that he calls anyone daughter in the gospel. Could have called her a number of things but it's Jairus' daughter. What Mark's wanted to do is he's saying, these two stories are linked. And her problem, because it's a case of her constant bleeding, is she can't make life. In fact, neither Jairus nor this woman have the ability to make life or to save life. With respect to life, they are both completely incapable. And Mark wants us to see that. That's what we're supposed to be left feeling. None of us can make life and none of us can fix the problem of death. But God does and God can. And Jesus shows us precisely his power to do this without a prayer but simply with his word. The stormy sea of death is stilled, the chaotic man is restored to sobriety, the woman is healed and the daughter is raised. And we are meant to feel at the end of these encounters that Jesus is big enough and powerful enough to deal with all of our troubles and especially the jaws of death. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the giver of life. And this is power, not just power. This is power for our good. The disciples are in the boat and Jesus has stilled the storm. 
it's not just power. Part of the shock is that you just did that for us. Jesus uses his power for each of their good. That's a remarkable power. That's the kind of power that you want. Not a dangerous power. Sorry, not a power that's for your ill, like the storm, the demons. These are things that are wanting to take your life. Here's a power that's greater for your good, on your side. That's extraordinary. So, faith, but faith in Jesus as the giver of life. As we close, we have to remember that Jesus' mission is not finished in Mark yet. He's on his way to the cross where he's going to deal with every trouble, including death, once and for all. And he's going to do it by tasting death for us. Jesus is going to take all this power and use it to lay down his life for our sake. He's going to use his power for our good. He's going to end up unclothed with cuts across his body, a man afflicted by the Roman army. Death is not coincidental. That's why he has to do this. He has to do this because death is the wage for our sins. It's not just a thing that happens in the world. But Jesus came to pay that price with his own life. And when Jesus rises from the dead at the end of Mark's account we see victory. Death is defeated because sin is paid for once and for all. Here's the guy who can and has dealt with our biggest problem. Sometimes these verses are used as proof texts for saying that if we have the right amount of faith, Jesus will perform wonders in our lives. But you know what is clear in these verses? What is clear is there's a 100% strike rate. No one comes to Jesus for healing. No one who comes to Jesus for healing ever gets turned away. No one is ever encouraged to go back and remove some ungodliness in their life and come back tomorrow with more faith. Are they? Never. That's because the main point of these passages is not to teach us about temporary fixes in this present age, but to teach us about the path to eternal life. And so the reason faith is the key, and the reason why the strike rate is so perfect, is because nobody who comes to Jesus, this is a 100% strike rate, nobody who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins is going to be turned away. Every single one will be saved from the jaws of death. Because, as Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is what's going on in these verses. 
My guess is that there are numerous people here this morning who face various fears about their lives. And I suspect that when you follow many of those fears all the way down, you will find that a fear of death is there at the bottom. For those of you who might feel like that, Jesus has a word for you today. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Amen.